This morning is our final look at the book of Malachi. I hope that you have been encouraged and challenged as we've looked at the words of this prophet over the last few weeks. Of course, I hope that this isn't your final look at the book of Malachi. Uh, I hope that as we've looked through it and, be- and as we've become more familiar with the, the message of the prophet, that this is the book that you'll come back to again and again and be encouraged and be challenged uh, by this portion of God's Word. It's, you know, part of the reason that I wanted to preach through Malachi is because that we can see this very idea, that this little book that's sort of tucked away in the, in the, in the minor prophets written some 2,400 plus years ago is really relevant for us today. It's an important message that the prophet has for God's people that he had then and that he has for all time uh, for the people of God. So Malachi speaks to the hearts of God's people, as we, as we reflected on even at the beginning of our worship this, this week, that, uh, you know, this morning, that much uh, Malachi reflects on this idea of God's love and what it looks like then for us to respond with love towards God. And in terms of this dispute that we've been looking at, that's been going back and forth, we've seen that God is most concerned about the heart, that, about God's people responding to him with heartfelt worship and with the best of what they have and with faithfulness to him and to others and all of the things that we've seen over the last couple of months. Two weeks ago, we reached the crux of the book, the real, the real climax of it, the real, the real point of it, in which the prophet summed up all of these disputes. These people have come to the place of, of really of unbelief, of slanderous words against God, as we saw in chapter 3, verses 14 and, and 15, of the questioning in, a, in, a, in an accusing kind of way, of God's promises, of his integrity, of really his existence. Summed up in these two charges, right? The two charges that that the prophet puts in the words of the people are this, that God doesn't, that it's vain to serve God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, there's no reward for us. There's no point to it. And that God doesn't care about justice. That God doesn't make a distinction between wickedness and, and, uh, and good. That God doesn't seem to notice. That God doesn't act, um, and in a way that is just and is fair. And we saw two weeks ago that, that as, these, as we got to the real issue of this dispute between God and his people, that there was a group that responded in faith, and they repented, and they feared the Lord, and they wrote the book of remembrance, and God then repeated his promise to them that he would indeed, that his love and, and saving mercy would spare them, even ironically at the cost of not sparing his own son, who served him faithfully. So now we reach the conclusion of the book. There's no more disputes, but instead a vision of what God will do, of what's coming, of what the future holds and how the future changes the present. Again, we're in Malachi 4, uh, page 677, if you're using one of the blue pew Bibles. And there's a sermon outline, of course, in the bulletin as well to help uh, you follow along. Hear the word of the Lord. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stumble. And that day is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. 
and then you will trample down the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the, the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Let's pray together. Father, we do again ask for your help as we, uh, as we encounter your word, and I pray that you would give me the words to speak that are your words and help uh, our hearts to be changed as a result of, of this uh, interaction with your word and this time with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a book in my office. It's entitled, Our Day in the Light of Prophecy. This book was published in 1918. I ran across it a number of years ago. I was in the little downtown, one of the downtown antique stores in Marion, Alabama, where we used to live. And um, this particular antique store was owned by Mrs. Thurber, who was the mother of one of the members of our congregation. And I was looking around, and then there were all of these old books over there that I was looking at. And, and this one caught my interest. And so this book seems to be an honest attempt uh, by an author to describe how recent world events are biblical signs, uh, which suggest that the end of the world is near. And so to, to buttress his case, to make his case, the author points to a number of things. One, uh, here are a few examples. Uh, the book points to the great Lisbon earthquake of 1755. So in Lisbon, Portugal, there was an enormous earthquake that destroyed much of, of what was beautiful about Lisbon at the time. It, it, this earthquake was said to have been felt in Sweden, in Africa, and even in the West Indies. Such was the magnitude of this earthquake, 1755, in Lisbon. He cites the dark day of May 19, 1780, in which the day was mysteriously dark all over New England, with no, uh, as though the, the sun was hardly shining. And the author points to this as, as that example of the sun being darkened that the prophet, uh, pro- Old Testament prophets talk about as a sign. He points to the great meteor shower, this great uh, event of, of falling stars of November 13, 1833, and, and on and on. So from the author's perspective, uh, these events had great significance in terms of their magnitude, that they were noticed by all people, all kinds of people witnessed these events, that they were, that they were um, uh, you know, strong, they were magnificent, they were amazing happenings, and they're connected, in the author's mind, with biblical signs and omens. And so people then would hear about this and they would reflect on it. And they would say, the Bible talks about earthquakes. The Bible talks about a day when the sun is darkened. And all of these things indicating to us that the end is near. Well, there's nothing new, of course, about this kind of thing, about people looking to current events and assigning them a kind of biblical significance from Hurricane Katrina to Y2K. The year 1000 AD was one across Europe that, that was... Um, that filled people with fear. People have looked for events to happen at certain milestones. They've made predictions. They've read the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. And in one sense, that's a good thing, right? Because we want to connect the Bible with 
the world as we understand it and see that the biblical wisdom is, is wisdom in the world, but it's a tricky thing, and that it's impossible to really match up these two and to draw specific conclusions about, God, about what God is going to do or what God is not going to do. In our day, um, there's nothing quite as popular over the last few years as these end-of-the-world movies and TV shows, right? Zombie apocalypse, you know, you know, all of this stuff about the end of the world, about these magnificent, uh, amazing events that are coming of, of uh, alien invasions and all kinds of things that, that are shaking the world. This, this kind of genre of movie has become really popular over the last few years. So it's this two-hour thrill ride of special effects, of death and destruction, of survival and heroism. And I wonder why. Why is our culture kind of interested in these things? We're entertained, perhaps. But I think we really, as a culture, don't kind of take this seriously. This is entertainment, right? It's not, we're not really thinking that the world is actually moving towards an endpoint. We're not really thinking that this is something that I would really need to consider as something real, not something on a movie screen. Malachi ends his prophecy with this vision of a day, of the end, of telling his audience and us, some 2,400 years later, that there is a final day that's coming, and that this future event changes our present moments and the life that we're living right now. Let's look again at at the first part of this chapter. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name or fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you'll go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you'll trample down the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. We begin, perhaps, by pointing out something sort of obvious, that history is linear. It's not circular, according to the Bible. It's linear. Other worldviews, other religions have this idea that, that, um, you know, that the world goes around and around, sort of an unstopping kind of way. But the Bible points us towards a future and an eternal state beyond this life, of an end of history and a beginning of eternity. And even though lots of people have looked foolish trying to predict when this will happen, it's certain to come, according to the Bible, according to the prophet here. And someday, someone actually may be right about the return of Jesus in their predictions, even though all others so far have been wrong. We should notice also one more thing kind of about the big picture of Old Testament prophecy and the way that it works, that in this passage, you see that there's actually... What looks to the prophet to be one event is actually two. Um, and that's, that's very common in Old Testament prophecy. The, there was a partial fulfillment of this event, uh, of the prophet and his words that are described here. And then there is a future fulfillment as well, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And we live between the two. It's kind of like... Um, if you're, if you're driving on, in uh, west out of Kansas and you get into eastern Colorado and you realize that eastern Colorado is just like Kansas, 
There are no mountains in eastern Colorado, and it takes you hours to get to where you can actually start to see the mountains in the distance. And it's really impressive because you've seen nothing on the horizon for hours. And then you get to where there, there, there are these mountains. And from that far away, they look sort of two-dimensional, right? They look like they're peak right next to each other all the way across. And so from the... So, but as you get closer, you start to see that one peak is closer and one peak is further away. And that there's actually a long distance between these two mountain peaks and this mountain range. And that this mountain range goes on for hundreds of miles also. So Old Testament prophecy is kind of like that. From the perspective of the prophet, he looks and he sees what looks two-dimensional. And so there are some of those, but some of those peaks are actually nearer than others. Does that make sense? So where we are now, uh, part of this prophecy has already happened in the coming of Elijah, uh, John the Baptist, but part of it is yet to come. And so we live in that, in that middle point between the mountains, as it were. Sometimes it's called prophetic foreshortening by theologians or scholars as, as they kind of describe this idea. So I wanted to mention that again as we, because we, we would read it in a different way. And we would read this very literally and say this must be talking about all one event. Uh, but that's really a misunderstanding of the way Old Testament prophecy works. So I hope that's, that's helpful as we think about it as this passage as a whole. In these verses, the prophet is telling us that there are two destinies. There are two groups of people. And it's really an extension of the end of chapter 3. This isn't a, a good paragraph break here. The answer to the theme of the book. The theme of the book that, God's, that Malachi has been talking about a lot is that this idea that God doesn't do justice, that the people are saying that God doesn't do justice, that God doesn't care about injustice, that he won't distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And as we've seen also, God has responded to that and saying, no, I do care about these things, and justice is coming. And Malachi is teaching that clearly that there will be a distinction, as chapter 3 verse 18 says, and as this passage continues. And of course, you can't really preach about this without getting into some kind of deep waters about God's justice. The people have been asking, where is his justice? And God says, you'll see justice, but you might not want to see it. As we saw in chapter 3, verse 2, right? Who can endure it? Who can stand against or up to the justice of God? And that's the tricky thing about justice. We hate injustice in the grand scheme of it, and we should. We hate the oppression of the weak and the vulnerable. We hate that people cheat and get away with it. We think it's a problem that the world isn't fair. And it is. And we long for the world to be fixed, and that much is clear, right? So far, so good, right? We can all be against the idea of injustice until we realize that the tricky thing is that we're part of the problem, right? That we've contributed to injustice in big and small ways in our hearts and in our actions, knowingly and unknowingly. We've taken more than our fair share. We've uh, put ourselves in front of others. We've benefited from the bad call, or at least our team has. And then we can say, oh, that's just the way the game works. The call goes the other way, right? And we're like, it's an outrage, right? We, can be, uh, it, we have a different perspective on justice depending on which side of it we're on. 
the, recent, the most recent U2 album, which I like very much, Bono says, uh, you think it's easier to put your finger on the trouble when the trouble is you. You think it's easier to know your own tricks, but it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. He's onto something very true there, that seeing ourselves accurately is a really difficult thing. So we have this complicated relationship with justice, but God doesn't. Right? God sees everything perfectly. He hates injustice more than we do. His anger burns against it. He's full of wrath about evil. And of course, this makes us uncomfortable because we realize that we're, we have a sin problem. And so we're going a little bit you know, we're straying a bit from our text this morning, but it's here for us to see, and we kind of have to engage this idea that on the last day that the Bible teaches that there'll be two destinies for people, there's no middle ground. And we don't really like to think about it. Um, And in some ways, that's a good thing. We shouldn't, you know, it's right that we would feel uncomfortable because we're not the judge, and we can't imagine a world in which fairness and rightness are completely done. But I want to offer just a couple perspectives here on this idea of eternal destinies before we then, you know, kind of get back into our text a little bit more. First, the difference between the righteous and the wicked is really the difference between Jesus and everyone else. The Bible teaches clearly that there's a real difference between good and evil, between right and wrong. It wouldn't make any sense of the Bible to read it without seeing that there's a complete contrast there. From Genesis to Revelation. But we tend to think in terms of degrees of righteousness or holiness or piety, right? Comparing people one to another. But the contrast really is Jesus and everybody else. Jesus is the only righteous one. And so there's not a level of human righteousness that anyone could attain to get this kind of heavenly reward. It's not a matter of just the pious people getting in. It's a matter of being connected to Jesus by faith in order to gain the righteousness that he gives as a gift. And we have to emphasize this because we we just think that we've earned it somehow. And we haven't. It's a gift, all of it. Second, the eternal destiny of anyone else is really not for us to assign or presume to know or to judge. And I think that church people whatever the church people are, whoever they are, have stereotypically been seen as those who are this guilty of this kind of judgmentalism, who, uh, and the charge is true sometimes, and sometimes it's not true. But it's never our place to say, those people, those kind of people, or whatever, are, are cut off from God. Those people are going to hell. There are lots of warnings in the Bible, and we should share those warnings truthfully, but with a great deal of prayer and with a great deal of sensitivity and with compassion and tears and pleading, not finger-pointing and Bible-bashing. Because truthfully, we don't know. We don't know who believes and who doesn't. Only God knows the heart. And we can't say. Someone who says, I believe, may not believe. Someone who says, I don't believe, may really believe. And we don't know what God does in the life of each person and in their hearts. And church people have been guilty of this. And we need to be very careful when we talk about things like eternal destinies. And finally, it's important to mention that this, the weight of this judgment is not for us to bear. It's God's alone to judge. 
and to bear. One of my seminary professors, Robert Peterson, has written a lot on the subject of eternal destinies. He said in class one day that he's had to remind himself often that this was not a doctrine that he wanted to defend or that he even liked, but one that he had to defend because the Bible teaches it. And we can believe this even if we don't like this idea at all, even if we don't understand it, because one thing changes the whole equation, and that's the cross. In the cross, it changes, exact, it changes the way we perceive the wrath and justice of God. Because if, just, if God is somehow willing to take his own wrath upon himself, then we know that we can trust him, that he's more compassionate than we are, that he'll do what's really fair, and that one day everyone will agree that he's completely right, and no one will be able to accuse him of any wrongdoing because he doesn't do wrong. And if the wrath of God was transferred to his son and satisfied God in that way, so that then we can be brought back to God. This is the unique thing about Christianity among religions, right? That God bears his own punishment. That God suffers for his people's sin. That God has humbled himself in sending his son to be the victim of his own justice. And that completely changes the equation, doesn't it? It should in our minds as we think about these deep and weighty kinds of things. Well, let's get back again then to the message. These verses again describe the content of these two destinies. The first group are called arrogant and evildoers. The second group are called those who fear God's name, which has been a theme of Malachi. God has said, you don't fear my name. You don't revere me. And, you, and I see that in the way that you're offering your sacrifices and in everything else. Previously, we saw that God had a refining fire for his people to burn away their sin and impurities, to refine them as, as, a, as a, uh, you know, someone refines gold or something precious. But here it's seen as a consuming fire for one of these groups of people. And then this image of heat and burning for the second group is captured in this idea of the sun, the sun of righteousness, the righteousness like the sun. There are a couple of passages that I've listed there that, are, that connect these ideas of the sun and righteousness and healing as they point to this final day. Isaiah says, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. The healing of all things, the healing of everything. It's being described here. A new day dawning, unlike any day that anyone has ever known. An eternal and sinless day. Nothing is broken or wrong. Everything will be as it truly should be. A couple of years ago, if you remember, Jaron Bars was here at, for our church conference. And near the beginning of his first message on Friday night, he described how Jesus always did exactly what pleased his father. And then he described how one day that will be true of us too. That for all who believe, we will do perfectly and completely God's will and everything that's right. And there won't be any more struggle or battle or inner turmoil or questions or burdens or pain or losses or regrets. 
And that's the kind of healing that's in view here. And it's pictured in this way of young cattle leaping from their stalls. Now, I don't know if many of you have spent much time on a farm, um, but this is a really interesting and apt picture of the kind of exuberance and joy that will be characteristic of God's people in that day. And I don't know why they do it, but if you pin up a, a, a calf and then you do something to him that feels like pain or punishment, you know, you give him a shot. It's really for his own good, right? But, but um, then you, you open the gate and then the calves just, they, they kind of go crazy. They run and they celebrate and they leap around. And pigs don't do that. They just kind of grunt and, and walk off. Sheep just run away, you know. But calves, like, they celebrate that they've been released from the stall. And it's such a great example that Malachi gives us here to describe this kind of sheer joy of exuberance that will be for all who believe on that day. Verse 3 gives us kind of a difficult picture here of the righteous sort of stomping upon the wicked. It, it kind of disturbs us, perhaps, as we think about our own lives. But I think it's, it's a picture of, particularly for those who have suffered greatly for the gospel. The justice that they're looking for is here when the tables are turned and when their oppressors and those who hate them and who hate God are humbled. Because God has forbid his people to have revenge and to fight back and to pay back. God has said, it's up to me and I will repay and I will do justice. And so in many cases in the history of the church and in many places around the world today, Great injustice is perpetrated upon God's people because they're God's people. And God's people are called not to fight back, but to entrust ourselves to our God, knowing that justice indeed is coming. And so that's kind of, I think, what, what makes sense of this picture here. Finally, in the last three verses, we get a final promise and a final reminder. Verse 4 Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. Summing up the prophet and all of the Old Testament, really, is the command again to remember God's word that he's given his people. And contained in it is what we need, is the grace for the people for God, the grace of God for his people, the pathway through this life the truth about God and about ourselves, wisdom to know how to live in God's world, all that we need, God has given us in his word. So Malachi says, remember it, hold fast to it. And how much more we even see today in God's word than his people saw in the Old Testament. Orient your lives around it, Malachi says. Trust all that he said. Prophet leaves with that kind of final reminder. He he leaves as well with final promise. See, verse 5, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Malachi is probably the last prophet of the Old Testament, but God has another one to send. This one will come like Elijah, who was considered the greatest prophet, the greatest of his generation, a key figure in the nation for his generation and with great influence in all of the Old Testament. 
And the New Testament picks up this passage and specifically says that this is John the Baptist, the second Elijah, who has pricked the consciences of his hearers with a message that the Lord is coming, that the Lord has arrived, that the solution has come, that God has visited his people. And I think it's a great, it's a, it's a moving picture to recall how the people waited between here and what we find in Luke chapter 1. The people of God had these words and they read them. The last of the prophets had wrote and then they waited. And they waited. And world events happened and empires shifted and Alexander the Great rose and the Maccabees revolted and Julius Caesar took the throne in Rome and all of these other things happened and the God's people still waited. For 400 years they waited for more. And some perhaps became cynical and lost hope, and others still believed, but they needed encouragement. And then a rumor began to go around. The hill country of Judah, about an ordinary priest and his barren wife, well past childbearing years, they were going to have a baby. And people began to consider this and wondered truly, who is this child who is coming? What was happening? Was this a sign that God was going to act as he has promised so long ago through his prophet Malachi? Absolutely. The messenger had come. And he was pointing to another who was coming right behind him, whose sandals he was unworthy to untie. The one who he pointed at and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What about for us today? God has acted definitively and God has acted certainly. How have we acted in response? That's the question of Malachi's book. The work of Malachi is to show us that the great love that God has for us changes everything. And it calls us to respond with repentance, to fear the Lord and to love him. And second, to faithfully respond to his words in all of the different applications and directions that Malachi has given us. In, this, in, their, specific, in their, specific, you know, their specific instances. Some Hebrew texts, some of the early translations didn't like the ending at verse 6. It ends on this idea of, of a curse. And so they had verse 5 repeated at the end. Or they, or they kind of moved things around. But the last line says that indeed if God wouldn't act, then the land, the whole earth will, really, would be struck with a curse. It would be taboo. It would be devoted to destruction. It would be ruined forever. It would be unredeemable. But God has acted. Right? It leaves us on this idea that if God wouldn't do this, this is all the terrible stuff that would happen. It would be unredeemable. But God acted. And God has redeemed for himself a people. And he spared them from a terrible fate. And he's promised them an exuberant and endless future. This future is for all who believe. This offer is for you. It's for your children. It turns our hearts towards one another. Generationally, doesn't it? As we raise our kids. Kids and teenagers, this message is for you to consider. What does it look like to turn your heart toward God and toward your parents? Parents, it's for us to consider what does it look like for us to turn our hearts 
towards our children and towards God's Word and to teach them of this God who has acted in history to save for himself a people. Be encouraged today as you look to the future. So much of the news, so much we see is cynical and is crass, is sensationalizing evil and wearing down our hope. But God's news is categorically different, isn't it? It's a message of hope and healing, a vision of joy everlasting. Consider these two destinies in your own heart. Fear the Lord. Trust that Jesus has come indeed and has borne the wrath of God for you. And live in light of this reality. God has come because he loves his people. As he sent his prophet to turn his people, to turn their hearts, so he has come. And we have that opportunity this morning to turn our hearts towards him and to live in light of his promises. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you with heartfelt, with hearts that should be full of more gratitude than they are, of all that you have done on behalf of your people. And, uh, and we're grateful. We're grateful for the thing that you did in this history some 2,400 more years ago when you sent a prophet. And then you preserved his words so that we could have them. And that we could see a vision of, of, of glory, of your glory, and of the way that you have saved your people. Help us as we respond to these words. We need your help. We can't do it on our own. Lord, help us to know how to to respond to all that you've taught and to respond to your love. And we thank you for it. We consider now as we we pray for our offering as as one other concrete way that we can respond to what you've done in the hearts of your people. And so as we As we give, help us to give cheerfully and help us to uh, use uh, wisely all that, that is given. And Lord, we thank you that you answer our prayers and that you hear us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.